Welcome to another episode of the Digital Humanities and East Asian Studies podcast. I'm Amanda Schumann, and today I'm hosting alone. And that's because yesterday I attended the opening of the Leiden University Center for Digital Humanities. And today with me, I have a special guest, Paul Viertaler, who works at the Leiden University Center for Digital Humanities. Paul joined the Leiden University Center for Digital Humanities this past fall, I believe. Mm -hmm. Paul earned his PhD in East Asian Languages and Literatures from Yale University in 2014. He specializes in text mining, unstructured natural language documents. Paul uses quantitative digital methodologies to study Ming and Qing dynasty, literature, and print history. His current monograph project is a combined qualitative-quantitative study of historical narratives found within quasi-historical genres written in the late Ming to early Qing periods. His second project uses sequence alignment, stylometry, and machine learning to visualize and explore the textual history of the late Ming novel, The Plum and the Golden Vase, which was written in the late 16th or early 17th century. The end goal of this project is to identify the text-long elusive author and to adapt these techniques to identify the authors of a wide swath of late imperial, anonymously and pseudo-anonymously written books. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. So before we get started in talking about your current projects, could you give us a little bit of background information on yourself, maybe a little bit about how you got into pre-modern Chinese literature, mm-hmm. and then why the digital? Well, I first became interested in pre-modern Chinese literature when I was living in China, in Kunming. Uh, I studied Chinese language as an undergraduate at the University of Kansas, where I worked with Keith McMahon. But after graduating, I didn't really have any interest in studying Chinese literature professionally until I moved to Kunming and I was studying classical Chinese with a guy at the Yunnan Normal University. And he was very interested in the water margin and other kind of 16th, 17th century novels. And his enthusiasm really convinced me that this is something that's interesting to study. So I went back to the United States to get a master's degree and became very interested in this, and I just ran with it. The digital thing didn't come until I was actually fairly deep into my doctoral studies. I had finished the first chapter of my dissertation, which was looking at how people talked about the history of the eunuch Wei Zhongxian and how representations of his life change in fiction when you compare it with official histories and other types of documentation. I was interested in these unofficial histories, and I wanted to think about them in the larger context of late imperial printing. And so I thought, where can I find a lot of information about books that were printed in China in the 16th and 17th centuries? And one thing that came to mind was online library catalog records. So I had been reading lots of books on print history, including uh, Andrew Pedigree's The Book in the Renaissance. And in it, there's just almost a throwaway statement where they talk a little bit about finding lots of bibliographical information quickly. And because lots of libraries will digitize their catalog records and put them online, you can use this information to really start to get a sense of what was printed not just, and then not just put in, say, the Bodleian Library, but instead what's collected in a random public library, say, in southwest Kansas or something like that. So I decided that I was interested in trying to use WorldCat records to get a good sense of what's going on. And so I spoke with WorldCat, and in those days, they had this program where you could do research using their data API. 
And at the time, I didn't really know how to program or anything like that. So I spoke with them. They said, yeah, that's great. After some negotiations, we set up this data use agreement. And so I had to start to learn how to program so I could call their data API and then do something with those results. So I was able to get information on about 30,000 books that were written from around 1550 to 1700 using this API. And the really great thing is because of the period that I work on, the information in WorldCat is extraordinarily detailed. And this is because of the Chinese Rare Books project that was happening at Princeton, where they developed these standards for how you should catalog rare Chinese books. And when that project closed, they gave all this information to WorldCat and it was indexed into their system. So I had all of these catalog records with extensive information on dates of publication, physical sizes, descriptions of these texts. But a lot of these were in kind of natural language blocks. So once I had these records, I had to think, well, how can I extract information from Mm -hmm. these text blocks? And so this was sort of my initial introduction into text mining. Once I was able to aggregate this, I was able to get a better sense of what these large-scale printing trends were. And there were some interesting things that came out of it. One thing that I noticed was there's this remarkable spike in very small format works. These are small printed texts in the latter part of the 18th century. And this was something that I hadn't really expected This is prior to the introduction of lithography into China. And, of course, we knew that through the Qing Dynasty, novels in particular were printed in smaller and smaller formats. But it's actually a very, very strong trend that just kind of jumps out of this data when you aggregate it and start analyzing it statistically. So this was kind of the start of my interest in the digital humanities. And I approached the digital humanities librarian at Yale, Peter Leonard, and I said, you know, okay, I want to work with data. How should I start doing this? And he's like, well, you know, how much experience do you have with this? And I had a little bit, uh, I've used MATLAB in the past, and sort of statistical and analytics suites. And he's like, you know, why don't you just see what you can do with R, which is essentially an open version analog to MATLAB. So I learned R, and then I started to learn Python because I was more interested in text mining because that's where the later chapters started to go because I was interested in looking at big stylistic relationships among texts instead of just looking at large printing trends. So that's kind of where the interest emerged and it it took on a life of its own and I'm now still doing it here six or seven years later, which was not where I expected it to go. So do you consider yourself mostly self-taught? Yes. With the programming, um, especially? Yeah, and this is not something that I would, I would mm-hmm. recommend because at the time, there was no training offered in digital techniques at all. So the first thing that I did, and this kind of predated the uh, WorldCat API discussion, was should I be scraping the internet? What are the ethical implications of doing something like this? And if I wanted to do it, how do I do it? And I I just Googled this, uh, as (laughs) uh, any neophyte does. And I came across this website. This was an introduction to programming in Ruby. And so I was like, all right, you know, I'll start to figure this out. And I just really enjoyed it. And I I was all self-taught. And this is actually something that I'm hoping to help people not do themselves. Because when I first started doing things, I would run into these errors. And I didn't have a mentor when it came to the actual programming. So I would have these errors that would take me days to figure out what was going on. And then I realized, well, if I had somebody to talk to, they'd be like, oh, this is clearly an issue right in this line of code. So I would say I spent a good six months kind of trying to familiarize myself with what was going on. And that's about how long it took. 
before I really felt like I had a good grasp on what I was doing. And, you know, when you work on late imperial Chinese literature, there are really no pre-built tools that can help you do these types of analysis. Things that are built for Western languages often aren't equipped to deal with, you know, CJK works. Mm -hmm. So I essentially had to roll my own research tools, which it was a great learning experience, but my hope is is that people will eventually have a more structured way of going about these types of things. Mm-hmm. Which is part of the reason that we have the, the Leiden Center now and yes. some of the other, and part of the reason that I run this podcast is so other people can hear about it and mm-hmm. start to make the contacts because we don't want to keep reinventing the wheel or creating customized solutions for everything, but rather having people speak to one another. Yes. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a big advocate of teaching people the very, at least rudimentary programming skills, because then the the flexibility that these types of skills open up is incredible, because then you're not constrained with what other people have done. But at the same time, you always have to bear in mind, well, what's the best way of doing this? Because somebody else has had this problem before. Mm -hmm. This is something you learn very quickly as a self-taught programmer, is if you Google a specific problem... There are hundreds of people out there who had that problem before, and there's a solution out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so by communicating more about how these you know, tools can be used to study mm-hmm. Chinese literature or history, it will hopefully make things easier for later people who want to do this. Mm-hmm. I often find myself, I mean, and I'm even somebody who did a degree in this mm-hmm. before and worked, but uh, took nearly eight years off to go do a PhD in something completely different, learn Chinese, etc. If you learn how to program in one language, it's actually quite transferable to another language. Language, there's a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. So I find myself on things like Stack Overflow, just looking up what is the syntax I need yes. in order to get this to work in whatever language I'm working on, or Googling and reading through forum messages. Right. To mm-hmm. me, once you've really kind of gotten an intuitive grasp of, say, one language, like for me, it was before I knew what DH was, I started in Ruby, uh, but then I moved to R and then Python, and so much of that's transferable. But even thinking about new algorithms that might help in in literary studies, just seeing them written out by somebody else in Python code makes it so much easier for me to understand rather than looking at a, some computer science paper that has some sigma formula on it that I, you know, <laughs> as, as a trained humanist, my mm-hmm. undergrad's degrees were in political science and Chinese language. And then my PhD was in Chinese literature. It's not, it was never part of my formal training. Mm-hmm. So seeing it kind of broken down into these logical steps really makes it more understandable once you have this background that you can kind of slot things into. Mm-hmm. So related to that, there was this great question from somebody yesterday, and I'll ask you to talk about it a little bit now. She asked if it was more difficult to learn to program or if Chinese was more difficult to learn. Uh, yeah, this is actually a really good question. And the answer is Chinese is far more difficult to learn. And that is because one of the great things about programming is, is that when you make a mistake, it will usually tell you. Uh, so you write it out, you try to compile it, or you try to run the program, and the interpreter or the compiler will say, oh, there is an error on line 59. And then you can go about trying to figure out what's happening. Or Sometimes it'll even tell you very specifically what kind of error you have, and then you can Google it. Whereas with Chinese, I've been, I started studying Chinese in 2001 uh, when I was 18 and starting at the University of Kansas. Now I feel like I'm a better programmer than I am a Chinese speaker. I spend a lot of time reading Chinese. And I think it's because of one of the beauties of working with Chinese literature is there are so many layers of meaning in any given chunk of text. There are allusions and wordplay and all sorts of things, and with programming, there is not any of that. There is is usually not much ambiguity. 
it's much easier, but in many ways it is like learning a language. It's, there's a grammar, there's a vocabulary, and mm-hmm. you can use it to solve problems, mm-hmm. which is one of the exciting things about it to me. Yeah, actually, now that you put it that way, I, it's more akin to learning French or Italian and then learning Spanish afterwards because there's a lot of, in some ways, because there's a lot of sharing. Once you know, in, in the case of, for example, French, if you know the grammar of the sentence, the structure of the sentence mm-hmm. is very similar. In Spanish, you just need to know how to change the words a bit and then you've got something similar. So right. that's a really good way of putting it. How did your advisor feel about so, all this? I was very fortunate. My advisor is Tina Liu, and she was extremely supportive. A lot of this kind of emerged after that first chapter was written, and we were trying to plan out where, where should I go from there? Because, you know, it was a reasonable chapter. It was fine. But it didn't have, I think, a real spark of, I don't know, inspiration. And so we were thinking, you know, I've always been very interested in technology and thinking about large-scale trends, and we, we had this conversation, how could we bring in these types of more large-scale interests into this dissertation project? And so we thought, well, why don't I go talk to Peter Leonard? Uh, you're thinking about this library thing. Let's, let's see where that might go. And I went off and learned to program and didn't give her another chapter for about six to eight months. And I don't know how happy she was about that. But she also, I think really understood that there was a lot of potential in this approach. I think had I had a different advisor, it might have turned out quite differently. But because she really was supportive of this type of thing, it was able to go where it went. Mm -hmm. She was very excited about it. I'm not sure how keen she was on me kind of disappearing for as long as I did. I mean, I was around town, you know, I, I still went to departmental things and whatnot. But when you spend six months kind of struggling you know, beating your head against the desk trying to figure out some of these programming concepts that, you know, you start to think to yourself, well, I'm doing this dissertation on late Ming literature. Is this worth my time? And, you know, there were moments where I would spend two hours trying to figure out what one particular bug was. (laughs) And I'm glad I didn't give up because once I got through that, the payoff was big and it, it was consistent. A lot of it's kind of working through these little slumps that happen. And this is true of any type of research, but I think it was more true of this kind of thing because it, w- it felt like it was so far outside of what my core mission was supposed to be. It was a good experience and she was supportive, which really made it work. That's great, especially um, considering that it seems to vary a lot on the advisor. The advisor is the key. If you find the right person to work with or the right people, no matter what institution you're at, then it can work. But if you get somebody who wants that chapter right away and doesn't see the potential, then it can be quite disastrous, I think. Yeah, and I think it helped because she, at the time, was starting to get very interested in digital humanities herself, and she and Mm -hmm. Mick Hunter were applying for a Mellon grant to build uh, a platform where people can share pre-modern Chinese texts. And okay. it's a project called the 10,000 Rooms Project. And it's, I think because of her interest in that particular project, it was a natural thing that this other kind of large text mining database analysis type thing that was going on the, on the side, for me, it made sense to support that, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your... First, let's talk about your monograph project a bit. So um, yeah. this combined qualitative, quantitative study of historical narratives in these quasi-historical genres. Right. So so first off, explain the quasi-historical aspect. So one thing that I, I'm very interested in is looking at what are called yesh. These are unofficial histories that were written without any vetting from the imperial government. And sometimes these were written by officials outside of any official capacity. Other times they're written 
by people who have nothing to do with governmental service but are just interested in recent history. But it's this term that gets thrown around in the late imperial period, and it refers to sometimes very staid historiographical texts, as well as just straight-up novels, completely fictional works. And I thought, what does this term even mean in the context of you know, late imperial China. So I thought, you know, maybe I can read a bunch of these and see what's going on with them. So this is where that chapter on Wei Zhongxian started at. I just found every book I could find from about 1620 until roughly 1700 that mentioned him. What I found was is that there's an extreme range of variation in how people talk about why he became a eunuch and then about his death in books that were written in this period. So I thought, well, is there a genre component to this? Is there a time component? Like, if it was written in the immediate aftermath of his death in 1627, does it have a different tone than, say, something that was written in 1680? I mean, the answer is yes, there are big differences in this. But I was looking at all of these texts, and some of them are just really, really dry. A lot of these are not fun to read, which is fine, but as a literature scholar, when you're kind of trudging through these unappealing you know, texts that have like poor prose and just kind of obscure language, it becomes quite difficult. So I thought, you know, I've read all of these. Now, are these reflective of the general trends in historical representation in other yesh that I haven't even looked at? And there are many, many of these texts from this period that are floating around. Some of them have been digitized. Many of them have not been digitized. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to see, can I use quantitative methods to see, are these yesh about Wei Zhongxian representative in any way of everything else? Because what often happens in literary studies is we look at one or two extraordinary examples of these types of texts because either they're very well written or their contents are very interesting, but then we kind of leave aside all of the ones that seem to be not interesting or not appealing. Mm -hmm. This was a way of integrating a whole bunch of these different texts into one analysis to see, okay, can I spot interesting examples? And can I say, is the Wei Zhongxian example representative in any meaningful way? So the monograph project is kind of looking not just at that particular instance, but that case study was kind of the core of the, the dissertation project and now of the monograph project. But then it's about taking these case studies and these very close readings of these representations and then saying, okay, what if I had, say, 300 digital copies of Yesher or of novels from the period? How can I use that and look at the style of these texts and look at historical or fictional content within them. So once I was kind of really into these unofficial histories, then I started noticing, okay, well, a lot of novels talk about these events too, and a lot of official histories and official documents do. So can I do a big stylistic study of these things to see how their internal style relates? And this is when I started getting into something that's called stylometry. And this is a big part of the monograph project. Essentially, stylometry is this idea that you can identify a unique signature in a text based on how often words within that text are being used. Now, traditionally, people would use this in authorship attribution studies. More recently, people have started to use it in trying to study genre. But one of the most famous examples of stylometric analysis is actually the Federalist Papers. In the 60s, uh, Frederick Mosteller and David Wallace did this big project where they were looking at the Federalist Papers. And of them, this, so there are 85 of them, of course, Alexander Hamilton wrote the vast majority of them, and then James Madison wrote another chunk of them, and John Jay wrote, I think, six or so of them. But there were 12 of these Federalist papers that were of disputed authorship. Hamilton had claimed 
in his writings that he had written these 12 Federalist Papers, but people were like, well, some of the ideas that are advocated within them don't really seem like Hamilton. There's something that's not really right about this. So in the 60s, what these scholars did was they decided, okay, let's actually count up how often Hamilton and Madison are using function words. So like of and these very small words within these documents for, from, and we can compare them and see, are there statistically verifiable differences in how these documents are using these terms? And in fact, there are. And they found that all 12 of those disputed papers were in fact written by James Madison. And this comports with what a lot of historians thought. And this particular case has been so well studied that now when people design new authorship attribution algorithms, this is kind of your default corpus that you go to to test to make sure that it it works properly, for English documents anyway. So this is a really famous example more recently, and this came up yesterday in one of the talks, is J.K. Rowling wrote a detective novel under a pseudonym. And somebody used these techniques to say, well, actually, this person is J.K. Rowling. And she did eventually come out and say, yes, in fact, I did write this. So there's this idea that often people will use certain words subconsciously in significantly different ways from other people. And this often manifests in how often do they use the word the or an. It's these subconscious things. And these are things that are hard to control for if you're paying attention to them. But prior to people really thinking, of, can we use this to identify authorship, Well, let me just say that it became a very effective way of doing that. In the Chinese context, what I actually found was that authorship is fairly easy to detect. I mean, depending on how how your corpus is designed. And there are all sorts of things that go into building a corpus that can be used for any research like this. But genre was a really, really strong signal. And so one thing that I do in this monograph project is I look at a whole bunch of official histories and official documents. And then I compare them with unofficial histories, historical romances. These are novels on historical events. Uh, And I use this because the corpus that I have access to just happens to label texts in this way, which is very convenient. And then pure fictional works that tend not to have an expressly historical viewpoint. Now, of course, people who are familiar with tropes in Chinese literature... Almost every novel that was written in the late imperial period is explicitly set in a time, usually an earlier dynasty. But often the contents are not reflective of historical events. The plum and the golden vase being set in the Song dynasty does not mean that the events within are historical in any meaningful way. But they often are used to represent Uh, historical times, the plum and the golden base being an example often of a political allegory, or a lot of people interpret it that way at least. So what I found when I did this was that you can use stylometry to visualize the relationships among all of these different texts as a gradient that essentially runs from these official histories and documents through unofficial histories, through historical romances, and then into Mm. fictional works. And of course, when we say style in this type of analysis, what exactly do we mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a great definition that unfortunately I'm I'm blanking on exactly what it was, but there are elements of how people write that uh, make them unique, Mm. and these are quantifiable in some cases. And this is a really useful way of doing it. A good example in the Chinese context is, is that one of the big differentiators of the text that I look at is how often do they use the character zhi, which is a, no, a nominative particle, mm-hmm. I think that's the right term, or de. So, of course, the vernacular text use de, which is you know, a nominalizer, mm-hmm. and then there's zhi, 
which of course can also mean things like to go, it's a verb, but Mm -hmm. grammatically it often functions very similarly. Mm -hmm. So the difference in usage of just those two characters actually will separate a lot of texts Hmm. into categories of, you know, this is more vernacular, this is more uh, classical. But there's a whole gamut of characters, like the difference between shua and yue, so to speak. Yeah. Um, Yeah, You see these very differently. So it winds up being very interesting because you can start to pick apart the language within these documents Mm -hmm. using these methods, and you can see how the documents themselves relate to each other. Mm -hmm. So it's that particular piece of research came out as an article in New Cultural Analytics Journal uh, mm-hmm. that came out last May. So that, that one's already out, and that's going to be kind of one of the fundamental parts of the monograph project. One thing that I'm, I'm working on now is kind of not just looking at the Wei Zhongxian story, but also thinking about other historical events that were kind of portrayed in different ways. And one thing that I was very interested in was looking at the fall of Yangzhou at the end of the Ming Dynasty, the way that people talk about those events that changes significantly. That one has a little more issues in terms of finding good resources just because of the sensitive nature of those events in the early Qing dynasty. So there's still work to be done, but it's coming together, which is exciting. How do you find your corpuses or your texts, your corpora or your texts? How do you find Um, these? This is not an easy question to answer because there are not many very high-quality, publicly available sets of Chinese documents from this period. Mm -hmm. But many of them are floating around on the internet. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you go to the Guoxue website, there are a whole bunch of them. But they claim ownership of copyright, so you basically can't download it mm-hmm. in bulk. But there are websites like, there's something called the wenxianfanren8.com or .org or something like that, that has thousands of pre-modern Chinese documents, or rather thousands of pre-1911 Chinese documents that are really valuable in doing these types of research. There's also Henseki Repository that is run out of the University of Kyoto by Christian Vittern, mm-hmm. which is a very high-quality set of digital copies of Chinese texts. They include lots of interlineal comments. It's all marked up according to the Text Encoding Initiative. A lot of the texts that I work with have no markup at all. They're just completely unstructured. I kind of prefer it that way, but I'm a little... I think that is just a difference in approach because because I am interested in trying to see if I can use some of these new natural language processing methods that are being developed, both by groups like Google and uh, Microsoft, as well as at universities, because often these operate, at least the way that I've chosen to integrate them into my own workflow, they operate better on just completely unstructured texts. So often you just have to find these texts online. Now, there are big disadvantages to this because you often get texts that really don't reflect the original document in any meaningful way. So very early on in this process, I was doing this big analysis of late imperial Chinese literature, and I found that there was one text... And this was the um, the Tao Ha Shan, the uh, Peach Blossom Fan, which mm. is this very famous play by Kong Shangren. I saw it and I thought, you know, this document, which should be a play, it should be hanging out with all the other plays in the resulting graph, was way over with the novels and not like any of the other plays. And I was like, all right, this is a great result. Until... I looked at the file that was labeled as Tao Ha Shan, and I realized this is not the original play. 
this is some novel from the late Qing that I've never seen before. And so it made perfect sense that it was with the other novels because it simply wasn't what I thought it was. And this, fortunately, this happened very early on when I was doing <laughs> these things. And it was a lesson that I took to heart. You always have to check. Mm -hmm. Are the documents that you're using, the digital texts, related to the, the things that you're interested in looking mm -hmm. at? It, it's an important part of the research workflow. And it often, building corpora and cleaning them and setting them up in a structured way that's useful winds up being 80 to 90% of the work. I think <laughs> many of us who are doing these types of projects where we're having to build our own data sets, it, it's just how it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is not that different than traditional research where 90% of your time is going into the stacks and mm -hmm. reading texts. It just comes in a slightly different format mm -hmm. when you're doing these big digital projects. That's a really good way of putting it, especially based on, you know, we were talking about some of the questions, some of the roundtable discussions from yesterday and how there still seems to be sometimes a fear in getting started. But if you put it in the perspective that someone who's been doing historical work, for example, or literary work for years and years, if you put it in their perspective and you say, right, but you know, how would you start any project? Right. You're going to spend a lot of time with your sources in the stacks or cleaning up your sources and organizing them somehow so you can find them. Yeah. That's what a data set is. It, it's a digital form of that, but it's the same kind of process. So, Oh, absolutely. And I think Hilda DeVert, who is the head of the new Leiden University Center for Digital Humanities, made a really good point when she said that structurally, a lot of what we're doing is very similar to what old school philologists were doing. And this is why I think DH methods that really focus on like intensive philological work tend to be very popular in, in China. Mm. And so often there's a fear when you work on digital projects that more traditionally minded scholars will not be receptive to them. And this is, this is a fair thing because it often is using methods that were designed far outside the context of literary studies for something like this. But in many ways, it's really so closely related to these very old school approaches to literary studies where you're looking at, okay, well, this particular term first showed up in, say, this Han Dynasty text, and then it's used in this way throughout. They're very similar types of research, except just the, the scale is a little bit different. I think Hilda had a very good point that this actually makes a certain mindset of scholar very receptive to these types of digital methods because it, it's philology in a lot of ways. I think that's a really excellent point. And I think if we can communicate that more explicitly to some of our colleagues, I think this would be uh, very helpful. The sort of technical magic that seems to happen on the, you know, in the last 10% or the last 20% that you, that you spend time on actually comes out of a first 80 to 90% of your time spending on building your data set in the right. same way that somebody who produces a monograph has still spent a lot of time sitting with close reading of sources. And, you know, it's actually um, interesting that you're that you're doing a study that is qualitative quantitative. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, you know, producing this visual or this sort of quantitative aspect at the end. But I think that sometimes one of the concerns of a lot of people is that the qualitative, the close reading, this is what's missing when when you do these kinds of things so yeah well i think one of the really great things about doing digital studies is, is that well it's a very good way of guiding your research where you do these large-scale things and you see oh well these texts in this quadrant of this graph are acting in a way that i don't expect then it becomes very easy to go and find those exceptional examples and read them and figure out okay what's going on in what context was this written that made it appear in these places. And, you know, one of the big criticisms you always get when you work on digital projects is, well, what did we learn that's new? What did we learn that we didn't know before? And in some cases, we do learn new things, and, and those are always 
very exciting. But I've always been a big advocate of it's always great when you have a new method that ends up reaffirming what we already thought. And this is all these extra layers of evidence just help bolster a lot of the arguments that the people have been making in the past. So if you think about, you know, if I've read 20 Ming novels and I want to say, okay, well, this particular trope seems to be common among all these novels, and I think that the style of these novels shifts in a certain way across the Ming dynasty and into the Qing dynasty, now I can take new methods and say, okay, well, how do these texts relate to each other based on this new idea of style? Or if I wanted to use something like topic modeling, which is very popular now, how do the the topics within these different documents relate to each other? Often, we don't learn much that we would say, hey, that's brand new. But in the end, it, it becomes another layer of evidence, and it becomes more reason to say, okay, this is actually something that's telling us something that's useful. And that's one thing that I really like. But bringing it back to the qualitative aspect, that has to be something that, that stays in because we're still trying to understand, or rather in the context of my project, I'm still trying to understand this cultural thing that is what I call the quasi-history, which are just these narratives about historical events that happen in kind of suspect genres. If you don't ever link it back to the original texts themselves and If you've never read any of them, then it becomes much less grounded. There is something lost if you don't do that. And that's why in this particular project, I do try to bring it back. But I also think that these quantitative studies are telling us something new about broad trends. Mm -hmm. and, And that's why it's exciting. And so your second project. Yes. So how is this related to your second project then? Okay, so the second project is I became, as somebody who works on Chinese literature and, and Ming Dynasty literature, I became very interested in The Plum and the Golden Vase. Like many people, I read David Todd Roy's translation of it as an undergraduate. And then I started getting in very interested in the history of the manuscript itself. And so how is it being passed through certain groups of people? Who's reading it? And then, of course, that always goes goes back to, well, who wrote it? And this is a big question in Chinese literary studies, and it has been since the text first showed up. And I thought, well, I've been using all of these stylometric analyses to think about genre. Well, what if I try to use them to think about what it was designed for in the first place, which is authorship? So I thought, you know, it would be really cool if we could use these methods to figure out who wrote uh, The Plum and the Golden Vase. So I started working on this, and in fact, I did this several years ago. This is one of those projects where I've had a result for a while, but every time I feel like I should publish it, I think, ah, but I can make this better. I can make it more precise. So it's one of these projects that it just needs to get out at this point. But that that being said, essentially what you can do is because I have this large corpus of text that were written that was written at the same time roughly as the Plum and the Golden Vase, I can use these texts, and if I know who wrote these other documents, I can build essentially a classifier that will try to guess whose style is the Plum and the Golden Vase most similar to when I compare it with this other corpus. Now, there are a lot of very complicated decisions that go into this kind of analysis. So who is in that training corpus? So basically what happens is I have a bunch of documents written by people who I know wrote them. I can use these, I can feed them into this machine learning algorithm that will build a classifier that I can give unknown documents to, and it will try to guess, okay, this unknown document was written by one of the five people in the training set. Mm -hmm. Now, the big problem is, well, what happens if whoever wrote the Plum and the Golden Vase wasn't in that training set? Well, this method's just not going to work. There are lots of other issues in terms of the Plum and the Golden Vase is a very 
experimental narrative. It's unlike much of what came before it. It uses lots of earlier quotes. Um, it's very heteroglossic, and people have written a lot about who the author was, what its sources were. Patrick Hannon, way back in the 60s, did a couple of really spectacular works on mm-hmm. the sources of this. So I thought, you know, can I do this at all? And the answer is, well, I can definitely try. So I did this uh, back in 20... I guess this would have been around 2014 and into 2015, I started this project, and... I did it, and I got a result that made sense. So the first time I did this, the algorithm thinks that a guy named Wang Shijun wrote The Plum and the Golden Vase, which is a, a really interesting result because traditionally he's the person that people thought was most likely to have written it. Now, there are lots of reasons why he probably didn't, but there are lots of reasons why everybody probably didn't write this. Traditionally, people thought that it was Wang Shijun who wrote it because for those people who are not familiar with this novel, it is beautifully written, but it's also quite uh, salacious. It's essentially a pornographic novel. And the idea was is that Wang Shijun wrote this novel in the way that he did because he had a family enemy. And this family enemy, who was a corrupt official, was known to love pornography. So the idea is, is that Wang Shijun wrote this novel, and then his enemy would read it, but Wang Shijun had poisoned the edges of the pages. So when he licked his fingers to turn the pages, it would poison him and he would die. Now, of course, this didn't happen. This is not true. It's an apocryphal story. But this kind of tells you a little bit about the context in which this novel was circulating in its early years. So I thought, okay, you know, we can start to do this. But then I think, well, you know, who else is likely to have written this? Maybe somebody like Li Kaixian. Well, my data set, my training set doesn't have a good representation of Li Kaixian in it. So I need to add him. I need to add Xu Wei, I need to add Tulong, I need to add all of these people who are likely authors. There's always somebody else you can add to the training set. There's always a tweak you can do to the algorithm that makes it more accurate or more likely to tell you what the actual answer is. That being said, I think it's now at a point where basically, you know, this is the corpus that I have, this is the methods that I'm using, and this is a result that I think is as confident as we can be where we stand right now. So so that's where the project stands at the moment. I'm also integrating other methods. For example, I have a good sense of who had a manuscript copy of this as of about 1606. Because I have this list of names, it's about 12 people, I can look at the social network of people at the time and start to think about, okay, here are the manuscript owners. Here are all of the potential authors. How far away are all of the potential authors from all of the manuscript owners? And then we can start to bring in other types of analysis. So now we don't just have the one methodology that's based on text analysis, but then we also have a social historical analysis that kind of hopefully backs it up. So this uses the China Biographical Database data because they have a lot of association information. And if you're curious, Wang Shijun is still the closest to all of those, all of the people who own the manuscript. But that being said, he's not much closer than, say, like Li Kaixian is, who is another, like, really likely person to have written it. It's always about what sort of evidence do you have and how well does it answer the question that you're working on. But this also led into a larger project. The great thing about DH projects is they they can spawn so many new questions that you can just, you can go wild with it. So I thought, well, okay, if I have a corpus of, say, 10,000 Chinese documents written, say, prior to the Plum and the Golden Vase, what if I wanted to look through all of these texts and pull out every instance in which the plum and the golden vase uses a phrase from an earlier document. Now, so this is the sequence alignment. This then. is the sequence alignment. Okay. So this is fairly uncomplicated to do, but it does require a lot of time. 
So there is something in bioinformatics called BLAST. This is the Basic Local Alignment Search Tool. And what they do is they use it to compare long strings of DNA. So if you want to say, here is this string of DNA from a bumblebee, how closely related is it to a wasp? And you can actually use this tool to kind of align the DNA sequences and get a, a sense of the homology between these two things. So I thought, well, this might be something that's useful in the context of late imperial Chinese literature. And other people in literary of studies... Course. <laughs> well, of course, because DNA strands. Well, and other people have used similar <laughs> methods in, say, uh, English literary studies. Mm. So it, it's not that unique of an idea. But the problem, of course, is when you're dealing with strands of DNA, you have, uh, what is it, A, T, C, and G. You have four characters. When you're dealing with Chinese, you have many more than four characters. You have many more than 26 characters, right? So it, it becomes very computationally expensive very quickly. The way the algorithm works is you take the plum and the golden vase and you divide it into four character chunks. So it's about 790,000 characters long, some, 716, I don't remember the exact number, but... You divide it into four character chunks, and then you take each four character chunk, and you search for that four character chunk in every single other document that you have. And when you find a match, then what you can do is you can say, okay, I'm going to extend the number of characters that I'm looking at and measure how similar these strings are. So you can do this, and you can just keep expanding the string until it falls below some sort of similarity threshold. And doing this, you can actually get a maximally matching string above whatever threshold you're, you're interested in. So this depends on a lot of, you know, assumptions on my part, like <laughs> what constitutes a quote, right? Are four characters in a row a quote? Well, probably not because somebody's name plus the character, you know, to say is going to be four characters long. That's not a quote. That's going to show up all the time. So I set it up so I could arbitrarily define, okay, well, I'm only interested in sequences of 10 characters or longer that are, say, 80% the same. By setting this parameter, then you start to, you, you of course miss things, but at the same time, you get a huge collection of sources. And so the way it's actually implemented now is, is different because that particular approach, it would take about a week to run the whole corpus. <laughs> you can do well. a, a lots of tweaks to get it much, much faster. Because I have a machine here that's, you know, it's a nice desktop. It's not super fancy, but it has a, an i7 processor, so it has eight cores. I've now gotten it down to about 10 minutes, which is great because now I can start to not just look at this one text, but instead look at multiple texts. There's lots of cleaning that has to happen, you know. You know, if I run this, what happens if, you know, 10 texts in my corpus were written after the plum and the golden vase? Well, the plum and the golden vase isn't quoting them, right? Uh, they're quoting the plum and the golden face. So there, there are all sorts of things you have to be thinking about. But these are new avenues of research that are starting to emerge because we have these large digitized corpora mm -hmm. and we have these new techniques to start to think about them. So it, it's exciting. You know, this is all fairly experimental at the moment. It mm -hmm. needs a lot of refinement, but it's... Mm -hmm. It sounds wonderful. I mean... It's fun. <laughs> Yeah. So my last question will be, is there anything you'd like to tell us about the new center in Leiden? Yeah. So the thinking behind founding this new center for digital humanities at Leiden is that the community already has a number of people who are active in the digital humanities, but they rarely know who each other are. And this has been my experience at every university I've been at since starting to work in the digital humanities is there's a lot of interest among individual researchers, but there's not really a centralized depot where people can connect with each other. 
So we're starting to do things like we're setting up an affiliate program where people who are interested in the digital humanities have a profile on our website so other people can say, oh, well, here's another person who's working in text mining or another person who's designing a database. So it's kind of a way of bringing together members from every institute at Leiden within the faculty's humanities. So this is philosophy, history, uh, art and society, area studies, uh, linguistics, and the there is a performance conservatory as well. I think that's all of them. I, I'm fairly new here, so I apologize to any institute that I've left out, if I've left out one. So the idea is we bring people together. We're trying to build a community. We're also starting a new minor program where we are teaching undergraduates what the digital humanities are. You know, what, what are the basics of programming for text analysis? If you have a bunch of information, how do you analyze it and visualize it in a meaningful way? So it's it's exciting because we're also part of the education educational mission of the university. So that's a very, very quick rundown of what the center is. We're brand new. We opened our doors yesterday. So, and <laughs> Congratulations, we, yeah, though. This you. is great. And, you know, we also bring in people for lunch talks and larger projects. So we're always hoping for more collaboration, more opportunities to uh, help people with digital projects. Lots of advising and these sorts of things. Based on yesterday's event, I think you're going to get a lot of emails and phone calls and uh, have so. some consulting sessions uh, <laughs> coming up. Great. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for taking the time today. It was my pleasure. Podcast episodes are available both via iTunes and at our website, www.dheastasia.org, along with links to any websites or projects mentioned in the podcast today. We look forward to your feedback via the website or email. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you'll tune in next time.